This episode sees the return of Chris Corfus from SlowGuySpeedSchool.com. On this episode, Chris and I discuss many topics. We start off with what's new with Chris. Chris shares with us his current thoughts on hamstring training and rehabilitation. I asked Chris how he navigated COVID-19 as a teacher. We discuss training methods to dampen neural inhibition. I asked Chris for his thoughts on using light and color to improve sports performance. I asked Chris for his thoughts on warm-ups. Chris tells us about some of the new educational courses offered by RPR. I asked Chris about training the feet. I asked Chris about coaching pedagogy. And finally, I asked Chris about his experience with England rugby and his time at Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand. Guys, this was a great discussion with Chris, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Get popping here. Okay, Chris, it is always, always a pleasure to catch up. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Today's my birthday. I'm 53 today. Are you? Well, you yeah. look you look 35, not 53, sir. Well, thank you. I know this is only thank audio. I know this is only audio for listeners, but you actually you do look very sprite. So keep, whatever you're doing, it's working. And that's why I'm blueberries. giving you just keep blueberries <laughs> all the time. It's all I eat. It's just all I eat. Blueberry, blueberries five times a day. <laughs> um but listen, that's why I get you on because nearly everything you do seems to work in uh, yeah. work work pretty well. Well, yeah, it didn't happen this year, but you know, what can you do? It's, a, it's all part of learning, but you're either right or you learn. That's right. But so, what I heard, the, the, the quote going around these days by Bum Phillips is, it's okay to fail, but when you blame someone else, you're a failure. Like it. I like that. Yeah, I, I would concur with that. So Chris, first off, what is new? What is... Like what's in your sphere right now? What's engaging you? What's keeping you intrigued? What have you been researching with? What have you been playing with, experimenting with? Well, it's been an interesting year. Um, had a, a rough track season. We were doing really well. Could have easily done a lot of stuff. And then it all fell apart within a seven-day period of time where I had, and I haven't had this in since 2006, I had hamstring problems and, uh, and I watched my entire, uh, COVID team, which we built up in the off season and all that, uh, just kind of blow up. Um, had a kid that would have won the hundred and 200 was winning the hundred blew both hamstrings with five meters to go. Still got third, still ran. Uh, I think he ran 10 51 or something, 10 52. Uh, another kid who would have ran 10, seven, uh, blew his hamstring the week before running a hundred. So it was like, you know, I'm the kind of coach that when things go wrong, you know, everyone tells me, well, you know, you feel bad, you know, it's, you can't control everything. I'm like, no, fuck that. I do control everything because really the stress in their life came from what I did in practice. And I must've missed something along the way. We did RPR. We were good at RPR. So I started peeling back the layers and really took a, I hate to use this word, deep dive. I hate that phrase, uh, but really start to peel back what I got going on and kind of restructured everything based on, you know, talking to some people that I knew, bringing athletes for other people to look at and kind of uh, deconstruct how we fell apart. And uh, I've been building on that and it's been uh, 
you know, I've had to eat some words or eat some thoughts and go back on some things that I didn't believe before, but, you know, working through it, you kind of come out at the other end and go, well, maybe I need to do this. And maybe I was wrong before. And uh, so that's kind of where I've been going through. And then I had, uh, I'll tell you more, I can talk more about that if you want me to. Um, uh, but then, you know, kind of going along those lines, I got a, at a track football consortium this year, uh, Ken Clark came and spoke up in Des Moines, Iowa, and we got to spend a lot of time together and start really putting some ideas together about what his research is pushing. And he always, he goes, I always give you stuff first before it's published because A, I know you won't tell anyone and B, I know you'll create exercises that go along with, with what the research is showing. And that's really what I've, those two things have really what, I, what I've been working on, uh, well, since June. Uh, and before June, I was probably just trying to stay alive, you know, not get COVID. And I did have COVID back in January, but not get my team sick and make sure that we compete and all that other fun stuff that happens when in this global pandemic <laughs> that, we, that we're coaching through these days. And I had a little moment of fame, Dave, uh, David Montgomery, who's the Bears running back. Uh, came out and uh, at a big press conference, told everyone that I was the greatest speed trainer in the world. I taught him how to run and all that. And next thing you know, my phone is lit up. Everything is lit up. And learning to navigate through the modern media, which was weird. You know, I, and, you know, I do podcasts and stuff like that, but we're such a small little pool of coaches. You know, there's a couple hundred of us that we all click around together and we're we're into our thing and all that but you know when the media shows up and they want to put words in your mouth and change your data and all that it's like wow you know i measure everything in meters and someone went and did converted it to yards and it's like well i don't know about that he did get faster i got that in meters perspective and i know how much faster he got but uh you know, then the media, if, if they don't get you right away, they do weird things like there's one radio station that never talked to me, but did a point counterpoint where one guy said I was full of shit and I made everything up and another guy who supported me. And then another one where they did, this, these are like hour long shows. Another one where the lady just read my website and read things off my website. And I'm thinking... I haven't changed my website in like 10 years. I don't even know the password to my website anymore. It's just kind of there. <laughs> so a lot, it was weird. It was a weird, a weird last six months, which was a lot for you there. No, that's exactly what I wanted. Firstly, thank you so much for being so humble and so honest because a lot of coaches would try and hide that shit away that their athletes got injured you know it's something i very very much respect in a, in a lot of my mentors like dan faff would openly speak and would openly speak about at least that he would and i, I say this like quote unquote say he made mistakes with but when your intent was purely like you you purely thought in that moment at that time you were doing the best for the athlete you know you really weren't wrong in that sense it just again it was a learning moment and, and an opportunity but it, it is very humble to see like when a coach says you know uh, something's not right here and something does need to change rather than say no it's not me it's it's, it's got to be something else because Stu, Stu McMillan's also another guy who would hold his hand up and when I was a young coach the very first coach I saw say this 
And I remember, I remember watching the DVDs and going, I can't believe he said he injured Natalie. I, I can't believe, I, I couldn't believe it. Like, it was Mike Boyle. who was in his strength coach, his functional strength coach DVD, the first series. And I remember I was, it was a young go-getter. It was like 2008. It was in my parents' house and the 10 DVDs. This is when DVDs was coming in those boxes and all, putting them in. Like, and like, this is when I was, you know, when you're in it, like you're, it's your, your first, and you're just like everything you're absorbing. It. And I could just remember like, you know, Boyle saying, oh, the amount of athletes I destroyed. And I was like, and I, and I instantly was like, I like this guy. He's like, he's saying he's wrong. Because up until that, I was like kind of influenced by like, not influenced, but I was reading a lot of Paula Quinn and like Paula Quinn was like, it's my way or the highway, pal. And I was like, okay. Yeah, <laughs> so, well, uh, it's, that was him. Yeah. That was kind of his personality. So just off the back of that, and again, it's up to yourself whether you want to speak, but it's not, what uh, What do you think happened there? Like, why do you think those hamstring issues were caused? Was it a case of COVID and maybe the, the, the training wasn't as often as possible leading into those meets? Or what are your thoughts? So well, far? I think everyone would agree that there have been a strange and abnormally high number of soft tissue injuries coming out of COVID and into a season, whether it's foot, whatever sport. But... These kids trained with me all through COVID. Um, so I'm not, I can't blame that. Um, so what we kind of reverse engineered was, uh, and I had help of a guy named Sean Allen. He's a chiropractor here. And I mean, he's, we've been friends for 20 years. We've worked together for 20 years. Uh, he runs the gate guys. Um, and yeah, so brilliant guy. And we started bringing people in and uh, basically <laughs> it was a core issue. Um, they couldn't anchor their rib cage well enough uh, when they were either extending or cycling a leg through. Um, and we went through and I, and I I'm built a whole new program based on it. And it's gonna be an RPR class because um, we I added RPR into the whole mixture. Uh, but I've personally started doing it just because I wanted to see, you know, what's going on and how, and I've, I've been great. I mean, I have been, uh, my back has been like a, an iron rod. I mean, it's the best I've felt in years, um, which is really good for 53. Like I can still go out and sprint um, where I know a lot of 53 year olds can't which is, you know, part of the fact that, you know, I do this for a living. I got to always, you know, demonstrate and stuff like that. But uh, so we started going through and tying the upper abs with the glute and finding ways to release because we found some of the kids would dump into their hamstring and into these exercises, their hamstring would immediately cramp. I mean, one rep. Uh, felt nothing in the glute, all hamstring, boom, cramped up, got to get up, walk around type stuff. Um, and then you got to a point where uh, a quad may be an inhibitor where the quad wouldn't let go and you'd feel either that tingly, pinchy fascial stretch over the top or just completely give out. And I think whenever things give out in those microseconds, the hamstrings, because they all do all kinds of different things. They're biarticulate. They can cover a lot of people, cover a lot of ground. They grab, and without support, they pop. Um, and so we've been re-engineering that and building that into movements. Um, I have a whole new series of primetime type runs uh, with with I work with Ken Clark on. Uh, but basically, the idea. 
that uh sorry about that it's uh you know trying to rewire and rebuild what we didn't have before so next year i don't have i don't implode i've heard you like cal as well as well as yourself you know way cal he would almost tell at least not to do any training during exam times and all that because of the extra stress they're under you know like in terms of the the psychological load and all that do, do you think though because of covid maybe some of those athletes were they, they maybe were carrying more if you like residual stressors in their system that maybe led to less adaptation for training and, and more likelihood of injury i i don't possibly you know i can't measure that but i can't i would disagree with that in my case because our state meet was the kids have been out of school five weeks so these kids were five weeks out of school the weather was phenomenal i mean it was a perfect sprint day 83 degrees no wind uh sunny you know you couldn't ask for better conditions uh it was a one-day meet instead of two-day meet which meant they slept in their own bed we took a coach bus down to the state meet uh I couldn't ask for a better scenario as to uh, creating their mental state and their stress state. So I, I can't maybe on another meet, maybe some other time, but I, I'm going to, that one is my no factor list. I would check that off in the no factor list. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't know now that they, it was out of school. I thought they were still during school period, but then again, I suppose but thanks for trying to bail me out and make me feel better. <laughs> Listen again, I think too, um, if you do get a chance, I think that could be a great, uh, article series, you know, this, the whole learning process that you've, you've gone through and are, and are going through. I think that'd be great. Um, no doubt that you, you will document your, your thoughts in, in some sort of medium, be it through written word or right now in discussion on a podcast. Um, how did you get on then teaching wise? Cause I know you, you know, you teach in a high school during COVID. Was it just all zoom and how did you find that? And initially too, when all the lockdowns came, what did you do from the coaching aspect? Um, so when we locked down back in March of 19, the rest of that school year was a train wreck where we basically put homework up online because nobody knew how to do zoom. Um, you were locked at home, so you couldn't go in and get training or, you know, for me, I couldn't even download the stupid program on my school computer because we had some firewall block. So that was a, that was a train wreck. And then when we came back, we started out the first couple of weeks all on Zoom, which now I knew how to do Zoom. And I'm, I'm a pretty good you know, my philosophy for teaching is I try to make it like a YouTube video because that's what kids are used to watching. So I have lots of pictures. I have stories and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I did pretty well, I think. At least that's what the kids tell me. Um, and then we gradually brought more and more kids into school. And by March, we had, uh, I had most of my kids. I had 80% of my kids in class. And the only two other 20% were kids that chose not to come to school. So I did Zoom and in class, which was uh, a lot of work. It was like having two preps. Um, and I know people give teachers a lot of heart. You know, here in the States, you know, there's the media is always smashing on teachers and we don't want to go back to work and stuff like that. Uh, we went back to work and it was in my 30 years of teaching. Last year was by far the most difficult year and most work that I've ever had to put into teaching. I mean, 
I've taught the same class at that point for 29 years. I was going in on Saturdays and Sundays to do work at school to try to stay up with stuff on top of, you know, coaching and running my business and all that other stuff that I had going on. And so why, was, what, why was that, Chris? What, what, what was the actual workload? I had to create stuff for kids at home. I had to create digital um, digital tests and try to cheat proof them so kids couldn't look stuff up on another computer. You know, I had to try and create as many bullet holes or cover as many bullet holes as possible so I could have as an objective and a fair class as possible. Because really, we were rewarding the kids who could cheat the best, and I wanted to try and prevent that. I get you. And the school you. wanted you to turn stuff in. And with the way it worked, you had to have, with our school board, they wanted to have some kind of digital proof that you were doing work. So I had to have grades updated at the end of every day. Um, and I had to show that we did work every day. So I had to grade every day. Normally, in a normal school year, I may grade something a couple times a week and stuff like that. Because uh, there's days where, you know, you just don't have time to do the homework. But now it's like you had to have proof that you were doing things in school. And are you back fully this year, this school year starting? Is it all we're back, back to normal now, but we wear masks, which is hard because mm. you can't. First couple of days is really weird because with the masks kids have on, I can't see it move. And I don't know your voice. So I just hear someone yelling out some kind of question <laughs> or something like that. I'm like, well, who the fuck is that? I don't know these voices. I don't even know their faces. You know, I know their eyes. Yeah. Maybe. Um, so, yeah, it's weird. And it's weird. Do you all have to be two meters apart or six feet? Uh, students are three feet apart and all students have to stay six feet away from me. That's mad, isn't it? Yeah, it's mad. So when someone gets sick or someone tests positive, I'm not making this up. The nurse comes up to your room with a tape measure and she puts it in the middle of the chair and whatever that tape measure meets at the end of that three feet, those kids get kicked out too. Those kids do 10 days too. It's a strange time. It's a strange time. So moving back to coaching, um, this, is a, this is a complete 180 here now. Uh, neural inhibition. It's a topic I really, personally, I, I've always had a little sort of fascination and, and love for this topic within training. Because when I really got deep into like, you know, the traditional strength and conditioning books, and it always spoke about factors, influence and force output, neural inhibitions always in there. So your thoughts on neural inhibition, because like me, you are very fascinated and interested in all of the sensory input that are that the bodies uh, take in so yeah, i know that you're very fascinated by the special senses well all the senses but particularly like with vision and the vestibular system and smell and taste um, and we know that that all plays with influence in the nervous system and then they can all influence this neural inhibition and then also then the potential of the organism's output but give me your thoughts on neural inhibition and like how, like and even how that maybe has evolved over the years with with a lot of the influences you've had and a lot of training protocols you've studied and implemented when you think about like trying to dampen neural inhibition what are your thoughts i think the reason the way i like to do it i or what kind of brought me down that path was over speed training because i have the 1080 and I pull people. I like to pull people. Kids, people like to be pulled. Well, some people like to be pulled. Some don't like to be pulled. Um, and so I was trying to figure that out. And it usually came down to a vision thing. Like the same kids that don't like to be pulled, if you put them up on a high box to drop off of a box, 
you know, they cheat, they lead with a foot down and cut the distance down by a third and things like that. So the body's always trying to find ways to be safe. And if we look at it from that standpoint, uh, and the body is processing what is safe much faster than we consciously know, there's got to be things that, that pull it back. And I think the, the example that kind of twists my head a little bit is the Bo Jackson story. Um, here's this freak athlete that blows his hip. But then if you go back and you look at the things he did as a kid, there's a great 30 for 30 on him. And what's cool is he lives across the street from me. He lives in the gated, lives in the gated community on the other side of the street, but he is back there and he's, he's out in the community and he is a, he is a specimen. Um, he's a big man. But, you know, when they said that he could throw a baseball, like when he was a kid, he threw a baseball and it went through the house, like through the walls. Or he could stand in water waist deep and do a full backflip. There's got to be something that turned off all the inhibitions to allow all that power to go through, which is basically like the idea that grandma picked up the car off junior, you know, in that horrible situation maybe he had less inhibitions, which has allowed him to do so much more than everyone else. You know, the body style is going to go with that power that it needs to be able to do that again and again and again. And I think it just went too far. And that's how he broke his hip. It, the body, the bones couldn't take what the muscles were putting out, what the co- what the contractions and co-contractions were, which and- is, it, it just when when you like when it in your mind when it comes to trying to dampen that down in individuals does it depend on the individual do you think like every it's a different input for each individual and even even sorry every, and, every body perceives threats differently and if you think about it when uh when you go snow skiing or water skiing or any kind of skiing where there's speed involved, you can see the different responses at different velocities. Like you'll see someone who's going snow skiing and they know they're going too fast. They naturally squat down. They're trying to slow down. You see the same thing when people water ski, uh, they squat down when they go too fast because they get scared and they're trying to shorten the distance to the fall. So the fall is not nearly as bad because somewhere in the brain it's going dude, you're going to fall and completely fuck yourself up, shorten the distance. And just watching people do plyometric drops off boxes or, or different things like that, just short, small movements, you'll see different bodies respond differently from the threat of falling. Another, another good way to think about it is we all knew the kid in elementary school who had really thick glasses, right? Vision was impaired they were never your best sprinters. In fact, they were never your very good athletes because the body knew you couldn't see anything. So why allow the body to do all these different things and possibly contact someone else and get hurt if you can't see it? It made me think of Eric Dickerson, though, when I heard you say that before, like because he was fast and he was almost blind as a bat. But I suppose it's it's the fact that like the glasses gave him the vision so like it, it he actually had the vision then because he wore the yeah. glasses yeah yeah so or it could have been the desire for the goal overrode the fear that's also a very true good point too yeah yeah because sometimes the target you know whether it's to eat food you're going to have to make that jump to get the food even though you know it's going to be scary 
and maybe his target was run away from people and run the football that overrode the fear of not seeing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it really, it's just a fascinating topic. I, I really, so intriguing. So it is neural inhibition. But yeah. I think the, the, what we do is I know Dan Fichter talks about jumping off higher boxes and mm-hmm. learning how to land. So you feel safe. I do the same thing with overspeed. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I like overspeed so much is uh, it's a, it's a neural, it deals with the governor of the nervous system yeah. and you let the, the, it lets the body know that you can go faster than you think you can. And then I'll put you in different positions, like different torso, different torso positions, right? You'll carry a water bag and an ultimate instability bag. Um, and you'll, what's really cool is you will find that breaking point for different athletes that, all right, now you're putting on the brakes when I'm over speed training. And when we do this, we have to fight through that. Um, the big one for us with my NFL guys was we do over speed with uh, ultimate instability bag on your back. They hate that because normally they're used to having that nice, smooth, their body knows how to deal with that speed and it can go faster. But once I start moving around a little bit, there's only about half a gallon of water in the bag, but just enough that the body feels, uh, this isn't so great. So because they are so high trained, their body knows where to put the different things in position. So it is safe. So we're creating a more resilient runner at that point. Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, everything you're th- you're touching on there. It's it's kind of connecting a few dots with me around skill acquisition and performance. And uh, like when you take the young novice athlete, we like it's pretty well established that just very general training gets them better because they're so underdeveloped from like a, you know just a a buyer motor quality or, or physical quality standpoint that the general training just it, it, it's like it bleeds into their sport specific. Uh, performance because again they're they're just they're so untrained but it's probably because well those general training stimulus are enough also to the they're they're enough to also start to dampen down neural inhibition as well at that untrained stage but then it's like as an athlete grows in their development usually progressions all through volume and intensity but then that can only get you so far when you get to that like elite level and then like you get franz bosch saying that the only way elite people get better then isn't through volume and intensity because you, you can't drive those and they, they, they have a diminished return he's like it's got to be variation then and then yeah. that variation to the system now is overload because now as you said with the nfl guys fairly well trained athletically you know under at that level the only way to really keep progressing the system and to try and and it's kind of like now you're like you're trying to get like those last little like chips off the neural inhibition like it's like the last because they're, they're already at such a high level that ve- that variation to to like already fairly stable motor patterns and and patterns that they're fairly that they have good outputs in it's like those little variations is the only way to kind of try try to keep eking out some progression forward so because that's kind of like where the skill acquisition literature is too it's kind of like novice you know uh general make sure they have the technical mastery down then just get them good through all that through volumes and intensities when that diminishes and they're at the peak of the hill then it's all just a bit of variation then and it's like having them just like like Stu McMillan talks about if you want to keep improving like you got to push them just to the edge of their capabilities get them uncomfortable there and it's like that enough variation, like you said, kind of with the, the bags, the NFL guys, you're going to, I don't really like this, but it's just enough yeah. challenge to, to keep the progression. Yeah. So that's, that's why I like the overspeed so much is I think it, it does other things as well, but you get used to speed. I haven't started messing with vision with that speed yet, you know, cover an eye, you know, wear a prism glasses, 
you know, that kind of stuff just to really push the level, mostly because right now, most of my athletes don't feel like uh, my athletes have too much going on for me to use them as test dummies right now. <laughs> your son is always your default. I always laugh about that story where uh, he's uh, he's getting wise to me. I was thinking that there were the story about like, I was reading this with the Soviets and they used to run through the woods. And I was like, well, I can't really do it with all the kids. Like I'll just get my son to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. He's going to be gone. So he goes to college next year. So I'm going to lose that. Oh my God. I, I, now I feel low. Cause I can remember interviewing you like three or four years ago. And you were just like, you know, saying that he was like a, a G or a, a freshman or sophomore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Madness, madness. Um, that actually wasn't a bad segue because light is something I do want to talk to you about. And I know you, you've spoken about the uh, Chicago Black, Black Hawks goalkeeper and the, that there was a, a woman involved in that team and she utilized like light. Maybe, if you, wanna, maybe you, if you want to get into that story and then get into some of your thoughts of what you'd like to do with some of the light stuff. Her work originally started with color, that different colors can shut you down neurologically or inhibit you or create a fear scenario. Um, and so the Blackhawks were playing the Predators and I think they were light blue and she did a color test on them. And as soon as you showed him light blue, he went weak. And so she found his strong colors and then taped on the back of his gloves, his strong colors, and you see him keep looking down. So that would override the weak from the light blue. And you'd look down and see his strong colors. So I know people have done things like, uh, well, I did this when I had football teams. We couldn't beat Glenbard West. And so we put all, everything that you were aggressive with, whether it was bags or a color at the back when you're going to do some kind of heavy lift with this dark green, which is Glenbard West. And so we constantly wanted to get strong while looking at dark green. Um, other people have done all kinds of different things with those kind of colors. Um, but then color is just light. It's just a reflection of light or a... And, we know that light can have a huge impact on, on how you perform and what you do. I think the technology, as far as creating lights to be different wavelengths uh, at a commercial level is not there yet. And also the problem is, is different people respond to different lights differently. Um, I have colored glasses, like I have Roy G. Biv and you put them on and we can, you know, I can get, sometimes I get two inches improvement on your vertical jump just by putting this color X on you, or I can dampen you by putting color Y on you. Uh, and kind of a good rule of thumb that I have found is usually whatever color t-shirt that kid is wearing that day is their strong color. Because when you wake up in the morning and you go look at your shirts, you're going to naturally pick a color that you like and you feel strong in. And that's usually the color that works for them on that day. And we've done all kinds of tests, you know, little tests with kids with, all right, let's hold it, the opposite color of the spectrum to what t-shirt they have on and test them. They test weak and, you know, stuff like that. It's more of a game, you know, because most people call bullshit on all that, but I don't think so. Um, there's something to it. Well, it's there's... just hard to put your finger on for an individual, for a group. There's a very interesting lady, Mariana Figuerio. I, I think I'm saying her surname correctly, but um, she's she's based in New York and her primary research is on circa like light and circadian biology. 
And she I've seen interviews with her and she actually talks about different individuals need different wavelengths for health. So she'd yes. be like, Chris, Chris, you are like green wavelength deficient. You need more green in your light therapy protocol or Robbie, you're more uh, purple and red. You need more of that. She's, she's like, it's no different to nutrition. Like she, like in terms of like, nu- like the vitamins and minerals, the micronutrients and the macronutrients that like you need this certain composition of nutrients. So it's the same with light that different people need different compositions of wavelengths at different times. Depending just like on genetics, where they are in the world, their their occupation too, because of the lights that they're exposed to on a on a daily basis. So and like she's she's actually talking about like you would walk into a room and the room would set the light spectrum that that's needed for you. Like which though, uh, just like I heard her say that, but then I was like, well, what if two people walk in and got different profiles? But apparently, like, she's doing loads of stuff where even like your phone, I will have apps and it will give you the light therapy you need and stuff like that. But she was like the first person that I've heard about individualizing wavelengths of light because i've heard about we've all heard like red light therapy and you know blue light in the morning and that kind of way but she was like no no for some people it's it's different intensities like you 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 need all of the light spectrums but the the compositions and the amounts and like the intensity and frequencies you're getting is actually individual depending on again so many factors genetics environment occupation everything that can influence obviously that an organism i know a lady up in northbrook her name is deb zelensky she uses prisms to bend light to heal your body. Um, so you'll go up to her and she'll put prisms in your glasses that you only wear for a couple minutes a day, but stuff starts to change. Um, and I'm, she's really expensive though. Hey, do you know really what's so, do you know what's hilarious with all like light stuff and all like what you've just said there when majority of people hear that, and particularly when it's like people in the conventional health profession, they're like, that's a load of crap. And it's all like, have you ever studied physics? Like, have you ever, have you ever spoken to, to like someone whose whole life is physics and they'll, they'll like, cause when you, when you talk about like light therapy to someone who studies physics, they're like, yeah, of course, of course that makes sense. It's like, you know, you break down everything at the quantum levels, just neutrons, protons, electrons. And what makes electrons move light? What's light? light? It's a wa- it's wavelength. And they're like, oh, and it's just like, cause see medicine only goes as far as chemistry. Like, and then, then once it gets into physics, they're like, oh, that's a, we don't go any further than that. So uh, it's, it's just hilarious like when people call shit and it's like, talk to a physicist. Well, people like to call bullshit either when they're afraid of it or they don't want to have to think about it because it's outside their little box of what makes them comfortable. Not that they don't understand it. It's just they're not comfortable with something outside of their little box. It's too hard. You're making me think. No. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so you're, you're, you've had a lifetime of that now being a teacher. You know, like, you're making me think. It's, it hurts. Yeah, that's getting harder and harder to make kids do that these days okay so before we move on to rpr which has now moved this level two online tell me about warm-ups because you had a very interesting take on warm-ups on um ken goodner's profession the professional athlete podcast i thought it was very good so give me your thoughts on dynamic warm-ups uh i don't like them uh mainly because you don't know. You just go out and you start doing all your dance line stuff and A skips, B skips, all these different things. And you really don't know what you're warming up. If you're in a neural state where you're, you know, in a fight or flight, or you've got a recruitment pattern that's not optimal, you may be ingraining a pattern that may possibly lead to an injury or a lesser performance. That's why I do RPR before our practices. And I know earlier I said we've done RPR and we still fell apart, but it's not bulletproof. RPR is not solve every problem known to man. Um, 
it just helps get to that point. Uh, so I am not a fan of dynamic warmups unless you are really, unless you're focused on what you want to do with it. Um, but I feel too many coaches use it as a way to kill 30 minutes of a practice so they can say they are practicing for two hours. Same with stretching at the end. What we're cooling down when well, you just ate up another 30 minutes of practice. Yeah. So you can say you had a two-hour practice and the AD doesn't get on you. Or because everyone else does it, you know, this is why we do it. Um, because no, so-and-so does it or that's what everyone is doing these days. Uh, so I think if you have a reason for it and something that you're accomplishing with it, I think it's great, but I think most people just do it out of tradition or for fear that they're going to get in trouble because they aren't warming up. Like when I have people come here for the first time and we do an assessment, I want them to sprint right away. I don't want them to warm up or do anything. The parents are, well, wait a minute, aren't, aren't we going to do a warm up? So no, let's just let, let them go run. I want to see what happens. I want to see what their true state is and, and what they're doing. You go warm up, you may change that pattern. It may not be what the body really wants to do or, or whatever. I've never had anyone get hurt, just get up and go run before. Never. So um, like I told you before we started recording or while we were recording is my new warm up is this stuff to kind of make sure or try to prevent another blow up from happening again. Uh, based on what I know. And it does, and it adds RPR into it. And there's some movements that go with it, but it's more reflexive in nature rather than go out and get sweaty and breathe hard and all that stuff. Now, another reason why I don't like doing the warmups is you have X amount of energy for your practice. You know, whether it's ATP, creatine, whatever your energy source is, I just burnt through a half an hour of that. And now what do I have left to actually get some work done? And people say, well, we're building an aerobic base and all that stuff, but there's better ways to do it. Um, I think right now in American football right now, it's cramp season because it's hot everywhere. And I'd say a good 45 minutes of the game is people getting cramps. But then my point is, well, look what you did before the game. You did a pre-warm-up warm-up. You did a warm-up and then you did a pre-game warm-up. So you warmed up for an hour. What's left in the tank that you want to have have, you know, what's left in the tank for the end of the game? Body doesn't know that the game's not on. It's just a warm up. It, it expends that ATP and creatine and all those other things because it doesn't really know a game. It just knows movement. Like the gas in your car doesn't know that you want to go fast or slow. It's just gas in the car. Yeah. It's going to burn no matter what. I, I've actually heard a few um a few of my peers um in the field speak about this lately james Gerald was one like he actually came out with a series where he's kind of like he has this myth busting series and one thing was a warm-up and he goes he's like warm-up is just like he's like what does that even mean and he's just like again it's just like people are like oh but you have to warm up and, he, and he's like but why and he's like when you really get to it, people are like well you got to warm up the tissue because like you know we know that warmer tissue is less likely to get injured and he's just like do we <laughs> Do we know that? And it's like, what yeah. about like neural activation? And he's all like, well, do you need to foam roll and take a half an hour just to get a little bit of neural activation? And then the, the other, the first person I actually heard about not do not overly warming up was Louis Simmons. He is, you know, you know Louis like, Louis like, and don't fucking waste all your energy doing extra sets. Just do what you have to do. Boom, get into your work. And I was kind of yeah. like, 
Mm, that makes a lot of sense. It does. And it's, you know, if you look at it from an energy standpoint or a time standpoint, there isn't anything that really points to this is a great idea other than tradition. And where did that tradition come from? It was response to what we saw in the 1950s Olympics when the Eastern Bloc countries were kicking our ass. We saw them warming up, so we got to do it. Yeah. And then they stopped, but we kept with it. Why? Because people were making a lot of money on dynamic warm-ups or stretching and selling whatever and all that. No, it's because the Russians are like so cynical in their sense of humor. They're like, let's do all these fluffy drills. And the Americans will think it's these warm-ups, but really it's the steroids. <laughs> yeah, it's... Yeah, Americans and, tend and, to be and, and and the better training techniques. Let's call it out too. They they were, they <laughs> did have some good training techniques as well. The Russians, um, level two RPR. Talk, yeah, we actually have been doing a lot in the COVID season. Uh, we have a new product out that's RPR. It's called Personal, and it's just an hour long, and it just takes you through the warm ups in a really brief, quick way to go through it. It's it's like a hundred bucks. Um, we have level two, which is the explanation of why things happen in RPR. Um, and if you've liked level one, level two will kind of explain a lot of different things. Um, it gives you different tests to see what's actually happening. Uh, so you can actually see, did this reset work? Then we have some level threes coming out, which I was filming this morning. Um, one is propulsion and one is deep core, which is kind of taking some anatomy trains ideas and some Ahmed ideas and putting that all together into some really cool stuff. Um, I've only taught it a couple of times because COVID stopped it. Uh, was, we were getting to roll it. So I've only taught it three times with some of the feedback we've got was phenomenal. In fact, Cal was just at the world hockey championships and was doing level three stuff. And all the other trainers from the other countries came by and said, I can't believe this stuff what are you doing he goes oh it's, we have weird names for it you know three word names for everything and like you you've got to teach me that this is phenomenal um so that's what we have coming uh and then i've got this warm-up i know i just said i hate warm-ups and all that but maybe i won't name this product a warm-up uh again naming everything is important and i'm i suck at naming things uh but kind of my uh I don't know, my exorcism of my bad year or my uh, Band-Aid to get by what happened last year. Um, we should have that out pretty soon, too. Great, sweet stuff. And I'm fairly sure we touched on this when I had yourself, JL, and Cal on the last time. But how are you still finding the reception to RPR in general? Are you still... Is it still positive for the main part? Do you still get any kickback from people or how's the general feedback? Well, I, like Cal said, at the World Championships, it was cool that both the Canadian team and the American team were on the ice doing resetting themselves right before the game. Uh, in the Olympics, you saw some people doing it. Um, so it's just, you know, COVID really threw everyone for a loop and slowed things down. And uh, we're trying to rebound from that uh, but I think there's a lot of people that really love it and they swear by it, okay, including this, myself. <laughs> this is uh, one of the, the last trainer related questions. Um, feet. I was saying to you before we hopped on, like, because like, I know that you and Kyle do a lot with the ankle and the feet and you had the, the foot rocker and stuff like that. Like, 
me personally myself I, I was never blessed with speed genetically like i'm uh, i'm um i've always been very good at middle distance that's kind of my my sort of where my genes would have led me towards it's just that my environment wasn't in in the sort of in that world so i just ended up playing hurling which is one of the gated game sports here um and it was a very average hurler but uh i've always had really shitty feet and like i've got like a bunion on my left foot like and i all, i've always thought my left side is worse than my right but in terms of just like weak feet and like bunions and not great toes, do you still think you can get significant speed gains with, with people who've got pretty messed up feet? Yeah, I've seen some people with messed up feet, but just because it doesn't look pretty doesn't mean it's not functional. Uh, a messed up foot can still be very functional because really it's just got to guide you to the right place. And sometimes a bunion is the fact that a big toe wasn't guiding you to the right place. So that joint became the big toe. And that's why the toe starts to bend in a little bit because you're actually, instead of going over the top of the toe, you're just missing it and going right over the, right off the side. And then after thousands of steps and all that, that toe starts to shift in a little bit. And then you're going to have a calcification over the top to protect it for more usage. Um, I have seen fast people that have bunions, but those are also the people that can't play any longer because they have turf toe, which yeah. is a, a top career ender for a lot of American sports. Yeah, it's a uh, looking enough now. My one, and I suppose I haven't been playing any like highish level sports since I was in my early twenties, but uh, like I still would have done a lot of training on it. My, my one never really got that painful, but definitely was a limiter like you know like my whole left chain and i know that people who are in the postural restoration issue they'll just say it's like it's because you know we're more right side dominant and in, in terms of like our body so you know um left hemisphere and right side dominant the body is usually more dominant and, and to, in comparison to your right hemisphere and, and left side but my whole left chain is like i have a smaller left calf i have a smaller left thigh like not significantly but you can see it and just everything's weaker or just wouldn't even say weaker, like because in the weight room, my left lifts as much as my right, but it's just not quite as robust, I'd say. You know, I've always felt that, but it was just something I've always known. It's like that push off of my left and my left, my left foot just looks completely different to my right. Like, but it's just something I've always wondered. Yeah, it can be, you know, that's always funny in the weight room, they're even, but then in size, they're different. And so you wonder about what the recruitment pattern is for that side, what, what's inhibiting that growth. Yeah. Could it be the fact that? stuff just doesn't flow to that other side so it gets the nutrients that the other side does i mean that can be a thing that's what i that's what i have actually thought of in terms of like the fluid like the fluid volume like because like your body is just a big hyd hydraulic system and like that's not that's not me coming up with that like you know people who are smarter than me like the bill hartmans of the world and dan faff and obviously some of the pri stuff like you know your body's just a, a chamber of gases that exchange and, and water volumes that change or like so it's just all these pressure gradients so that's something i have actually thought about in that you know like even in my my mind i'm like do i have like just like more blood like vessels on my right side so there's more blood volume versus my left or because again it's funny you said it because like there is no strength like discrepancies like when i do unilateral stuff but it's still harder on my left. You know what I mean? There's always, and it's just a slight bit of difference in size. Like it's funny. And that's a downfall of our profession is we see everything through strength. What does the muscle do? Is it a fast twitch or slow twitch? Yeah. Is there a co-contraction? We never look at blood volumes, but yet when you do surgery on something, that pressure in the system is everything. If you're not measuring that pressure or it goes bad, you're dead. 
but wait a minute, this always function. Well, the, just the pressure in the system is really important. And the fact that we have most of the stuff flows on the left side of our body, you know, just because we're all right-handed and everything can travel on the left side while the right hand is doing everything. You know, there's a million different things that we forget to look at when we're trying to figure out why these different things happen. Which is why I think it's so interesting that, uh, you know, we look at the neural inhibitions, you know, we look at these different aspects and we, we try to find these little things that might make a small difference. But for someone, it may be a big difference because that one part really sucked on them. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I'm always looking for new things because I'm trying to constantly chip away at that time, hundredth by hundredth by hundredth. And, and I recognize that there's a thousand things that goes into what makes you fast. And we know about three of them. I just looked at my notes here and I nearly forgot actually the main question I wanted to ask you coaching pedagogy. I said this to you before I hopped on. So nearly every, you're going to skip this one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we can cut it out if you want. Um, but as I said to you before we hopped on, nearly every podcast that I've heard you do, um, and anytime I've had you on here, it's always been about what you do. But like, I'd love to know more about like, you know, how you do, how do you communicate? What is your coaching style? Like, what are your thoughts on pedagogy? If you have any. I... My, my immediate response is I really don't think about it. I am just me. And I go out and what you see is me. Um, I don't, I try to be the bridge to whatever their dream is. Um, so if I can find that out, I can get into your head and I can play all kinds of mind games with you if I wanted to, when I need to. Um, but that's what I try to be. So whether it's a physical bridge, an emotional bridge, uh, a mental bridge, I try to be that way to transfer you to that goal. So really, I do. I can do all kinds of cool training workouts and things like that. Um, but there's other aspects to coaching as well. Um, I know Cal and I joke about as soon as coaches start talking about culture and things like that, they're out of stuff to talk about. Um, but really that's a, a major thing. So once I know you and your buttons, uh, I know how to do that. So one kid I might be able to joke around with and use a sense of humor to try and get my point across. I know kids who don't respond to verbal cues and I have to give them physical cues. Like sometimes I don't say anything to a kid, I'll just walk a certain way. I'll kind of give them a flash with my eye like that's what I want you to do. Um, so I have to find the best way to communicate with that individual and what they respond to really well. Sometimes it takes me a little bit longer than other kids, but I've been doing this 30 some years. So I'm, I kind of have, and I teach too. So I do the same thing with my teaching. Um, but I try to try to communicate with you what we, what we need to do to get you to the point that we want to get to. So at my practices, you'll see a lot of people doing different things because I pull kids aside and say, well, you're not doing this workout today. This is what I need you to do. Um, I'm not a yeller. Usually if there's a problem, it's my fault because I didn't communicate it clearly enough to my athlete. Um, 
if I need to make a physical change, I will do an exercise or a drill that challenges what I need you to do. So you have to find it on your own without me yelling, Jonesy, pump your arms, pump your arms. Now open your hands, Jonesy. Come on. Oh, Jonesy. You know, it, it's, it's not that. I have to give you something that you have to figure out and get to that point. So really my drills that I use are really to make it so that whatever I want you to do is the only way to do it. And hopefully that becomes the way you do it. Fuck's sake, Jonesy. Yeah, I know. There's a... But it's it's funny though, again, as you were giving your answer there, a, a few more dots connected in my mind in that I think that, you know, if, if you were to strip everything back again, like the first principles, it really just boils down to input perception output when we're talking about like an organism and in this case the human organism and the nervous system so like we've been talking about some training factors that can influence the organism so light um and then you know like ways we can manipulate the body through dropping off boxes and decrease and dampening down neural inhibition how you communicate is an input to to an individual in that moment whether it's a look or something you said and then not only what you said but as as our mothers always said it's not what you said it's the way you said it so you know so the the way you said something so communication is just another sensory input to a a person and so to me like and i I don't want to answer for you but it seems to me that your sort of coaching pedagogy coaching philosophy is to facilitate athletes to reach their maximum potential and you'll use any means necessary ethical of course uh that you see uh, that's going to get the biggest return on investment be that through a training modality whether it's over speed like over over speed uh sprints or resistance sprints or if it's the depth jump or if it's how you language something or uh, you know it seems to be all about the sensory input to get the, the output that we're looking for yeah that's that's exactly right and there's a million you know, part of it is they're coming out of school and they've been talked at all day. Um, they've been staring at a blue screen. Um, I think with coaching, there doesn't not need to be sometimes a lot of communication. That body language goes a long way when you're a coach. Um, and, I, and I use a lot of body language. So I am not the guy that's stalking around everywhere, yelling and screaming with a clipboard. Um, if you hear me yell, it's because I'm really happy for someone and I want the whole field house to know that this that you just broke broke a, a record or you broke your own record or you just did something phenomenal. I mean, that's the only time you'll hear me raise my voice. Uh, when I coach at York High School, there were arguably two of the best coaches in the history in the state of Illinois that were there. One guy's name was Joe Newton, who's world famous, and Stan Rettel. And working with them for 10 years, you really learned how to get into kids heads in a good way and really learn to use jedi mind tricks that's what i said stan always would do you know it's like the first star wars where you don't want it you're not interested in these droids we're not interested in these droids i mean that's the kind of stuff that i learned to do from him that your idea becomes their idea um motivation without yelling and screaming and wearing t-shirts and things like that uh, make it really internal for what we want to do together and how we can get to that point and how I can get help get you to that point. Um, and anyway, the story with, with coach Newton and coach Rettel was, you know, coach Newton, a lot of people gave crap because he was kind of a rough guy and that's what you saw at track meets. But when you saw the love that he put into his kids at practices and how everyone 
got celebrated. Uh, a big thing for him, and this is what really, the end of education for me was they did attendance every day. And at the beginning of practice, they would read your name off the list just so they could hear someone say your name because nothing motivates you more than when someone says your name. And when you left practice every day, you had to shake the hand of all the coaches and we would say their name as well. So twice in practice, you got to hear someone say your name. And what can't you do in school anymore? You can't read off roll. You can't say that kid's name. Yeah, different times. But listen, that was a fantastic answer. And again, I've, it's, it's evoked a lot of thoughts that, that, um, that if I started sharing, it would just make this podcast about four hours long. And everyone knows I like to talk, so... I'll leave it at that. Um, one final thing here, actually, before we talk a tiny little bit about history, because I know we both love history. Particularly, this is where everyone turns it off now. Yeah, yeah, but uh, all <laughs> listeners, yeah, all the SSC people can turn it off now. But no, uh, one final, um, one final question that is related to to training and and to to sort of why people would tune into this. You recently got a gig with, well, maybe not recently, but you got a gig with English Rugby. I'd love to hear a little bit, bit about that. Not anymore. Well, I know it was spoiled. It was spoiled, wasn't it? By it was COVID and whatnot. But you're all you were also brought down to New Zealand and AUT, the f- phenomenal institute. So, if if you could shed light on those experiences, that'd be great. Well, I kind of hit it off with uh, rugby guys in Dallas, Texas, when they came to an RPR, and uh, and I, this won't go over very well with the European group, but uh, we were sitting there and said, "Let's go to dinner." So we went downtown Dallas, had steak. Uh, and then they said to me, do you think you can take a shooting? I said, sure, let's go to a range. Are you kidding me? I said, no, I, I'll take you shooting. So we went to a, it's called the Black Eagle gun range. And I took them in. And so here's these two guys, eyes as big as a kid in a candy store on Easter or whatever, you know, whatever kid analogy that you want to use that they're completely overwhelmed with what they see there. I said, what do you guys want to shoot? And they go, can we shoot an AK? I said, yeah, we'll rent an AK. What else? He go, oh, a Glock. And I said, oh, I don't like Glocks, but we'll get a Glock. All right. So we took him in, took him into the range. And uh, they said, you realize if we did this at home, we'd be in prison. I said, but we're in Texas. Anything goes in Texas. This is okay. So we just kind of hit it off and then we spent the night talking training and the next day we talked training and uh, John Clark kept calling me with stuff and we started working on people and they said, hey, do you want to come on tour with us in Japan this summer? And, uh, you know, I think they were maybe thinking of something bigger than that. I said, well, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come. And then COVID came and they canceled the whole tour. And so right about that time was also the time that John Cronin, JC, uh, who runs Sprints down in, in Auckland at AUT. Uh, he asked me to come down and speak and be the keynote speaker at their Sprints clinic. And I spoke a bunch of times. Um, went down there at Michal Cahill, who I knew we did an overspeed training research. He was defending his dissertation. And so we had been friends before. And uh, a couple other guys, we all kind of hung out together. And... Uh, it's kind of funny. There is an American, an Irishman, an Englishman, an Australian, and a New Zealander. And we're driving around. It's like, this is like the beginning of a bad joke as, as we're driving around 
all over the place and doing all the things we did down there. But at the end of the trip, uh, John Cronin asked if I would be interested in being an advisor, a research advisor uh, at Sprints for AUT. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll take it. Uh, and then COVID. So it really cut back on what we could do and the work that we were doing and uh, the stuff we had going on. Uh, so yeah, it was fun. It's, it's neat because at high school, I'm just a US history teacher and you know nobody knows that outside of school, I do all this other stuff. Um, but yet I have people from all over the world call me and, and stuff like that. But I, you know, in class, it's like struggling to get kids to pay attention. And, but here, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm on podcasts, I'm on TV, I'm on the, all these different things. So it's really kind of a, a dichotomy of a lifestyle where you know, you have this secret life outside. It's really pretty public if you go into our little group of 300 people that like training the way we like to train. Well, you, you got to admit, it is a little bit cool, though, isn't it? Like, you know, you know, you're, you're, you're teaching your class and you're just like, these students have no idea who I am. <laughs> I, I, I know that sounds really big headed, but like, you know, there is times you're like, they have no idea that like there's people. I don't. <laughs> I never bring it up. I don't think that at all because teaching is a very humbling profession. Yeah, true, true. Um, I actually, and you, by the way, you said I'm just a history teacher, and I was like, "Don't say just, man. You, you know, you're a great history teacher." You know, at home, Paul McCartney is still dead. Yeah, very true. Very, very. So, true. or you can never be famous at home. Can't be a. What is it? You can't be a prophet in your own town. In your own you know, town. All those different things. Yeah. It's funny because I remember Boyle said that. Boyle's like, you want to be an expert? He says, get your PowerPoints and drive about 10 miles away from where you're from. That's right. More. But it's exactly funny too because right. when I first went over and when I interned at Mike Boyle's, it was actually this very date, 4th of September, 12 years ago, is when I flew out to Boston, my first time leaving Ireland as a, as a fresh faced 22 year old. So now you know how old I am. Do your maths. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, when when I went and hung out at, at Boston University, he was still the, the head SSC for the ice hockey team. It was the exact same with his players. So they're all like, so uh, they're all like, oh, I can't do a Boston accent or any American yeah. accents, but I'll go like, with it. They were like, so why why are you here? And I was like, oh, to to I interned at Coach Boyle's facility, and they were like, really? And they were like, Coach Coach, and I was like, yeah, I went to I came here to learn under Mike. Like he's like one of the most well known coaches in the world. And by the way, I'm always very careful. I didn't say best. I said well-known. I was like, he's one of the most well-known strength coaches in the world. And they just, like, the guys are like, Coach Boyle? And I was like, yeah, like, he's, like, really well-known in the profession. Like, and he's like, they were just, like, couldn't believe it. <laughs> they just, like, yeah. they just thought he was Mike, like, you know. It's the same thing for me. It's, uh, but, you know, that's the way it is. And I'm happy with that. You know, I don't, you know, they don't even ask me. The other coaches in my building don't even come ask me. You know, I worked for the Cubs for three years. Do you think the baseball coaches ever come and say, hey, do you think you'd show me what you did with the Cubs or speed training for that? Or, you know, same thing with Cal up at Minnesota. I mean, their star running back blew his Achilles the other night, uh, but they don't have anything to do with Cal did. And, you know, it's like, well, if you did spring ankle stuff, you may have avoided that. Yeah. I've heard Kelly Starrett say the same thing too. Like his daughters, they were into gymnastics and like, 
no one in the gymnastics place had a clue who Kelly was. You know what I mean? It yeah. within, within his little bubble you know, of what Billy was, and now it's called the ready state. But and come here. So because of COVID, though, are, will you still get a chance with John Cronin and the guys down at AUT to, to do some research? I'm still good with JC, but New Zealand is still locked down. Yeah, I know that. Well, it's, it's it went back in, didn't it, to a lockdown? I would love to go back to New Zealand. Uh, John Cronin is a phenomenal human being, uh, the best host you could possibly ever ask for when you go to another country. Um, I've heard nothing but legendary stories with this man. So Eric Helms, phenomenal. Eric Helms, Brett Contreras, Michal Cahal, they all say like this John Cronin guy is like a legend. He survived, He's a legend. He, he survived look at how many Look at how many research papers he has his name on. Oh, I know. Like he's just like... Uh, who else? Is, you know, like, I mean, you come in, so you fly into New Auckland, you're getting off the plane, you just flew for 22 hours, 23 hours, and there he is waiting for you. He knows exactly who you are when you step off the plane. Come on in the car. You're in his car. Next thing you know, you're at his house. Um, let's go get something to eat. And, you know, I'm going to go, we're going to, on the way here, we're going to stop here because I want to show you this historical thing and I want to show you this and I want to show you that. And we're going to try this food and we're going to, Here's all these guys from all other places around the world. And he, he phenomenal. Most of the time, I think icebreakers are complete bullshit. Like if I want to talk yeah. to someone, I'm going to go find them and talk to them. Yeah, exactly. He finds a way around it. So what we did is we had all these researchers together around the beach because Brett Contreras donates money for these research roundtables. Brett Contreras is a very generous person with his money. I know Brett very well, and I know this. And this is the stuff people don't know about Brett. I know this. Yeah, very generous. And uh, everyone get in the car and follow me. And so we follow up, and we're at a volcano. He goes, we're going to walk around the volcano, and we end up at this ice cream shop. But you end up talking with everyone in your group while you're walking around this volcano on the ocean. And it's, it's not a forced icebreaker at all. It's you're walking and someone says, hey, blah, 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 blah. Of course, everyone says, you're from Chicago. You know, do you, you know, do people shoot at you? You know, they always have questions about getting shot at here in Chicago, um, which doesn't happen. But uh, yet, but it just, he knows how to run a group. He knows how to run a small group. He is very genuine. He knows how to get people to talk in a organic fashion, um, couldn't ask for a nicer person, couldn't ask for a more generous person. Uh, if you travel to New, well, I shouldn't put this out there, but he is what you hope for when you travel to a foreign country because he checks off all the boxes of what makes it a great time there for you. He's, he's a cancer survivor too, isn't he? He is. Yeah, no, I, I'm so pretty I, sure. Are you? Yeah. God, I didn't know that. <laughs> just for the listeners he flexes biceps the the universal uh showing of strength but um man you've you've really made me want to go meet john crow now because i've uh, like so many people have have nothing but as i just said previously have, they just said and, you know i've people. never seen someone more organic at getting people to meet oh that's it's almost like you he gets you to bump into someone and go Oh, you're Angus Ross. Oh, you're Chris Corfus, blah, 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 blah. And then he walks away and next and he kind of sets up like this question for yeah. the two of you to work on. And then he walks away. He's like an Irish he's doing that. He's doing that with a room of 300 people. Like an Irish matchmaker. And by the way, very good on saying Michal Cahill. Cam, Cam, Cam Joss did the same thing that you and Cam both said Michal. Very impressed. 
So here's here's why that's a funny joke, because when <laughs> he showed up in Chicago with Ken Clark to do this research, uh, Ken calls him Irish Mike. That's and a, so that's OK. Uh, not for him. <laughs> so I went down to Auckland and I started calling him Irish Mike in front of everyone. Oh, and uh he finally got up and said, it's me, Hall. And I said, well, how about if I call you Dr. Irish Mike? And he goes, well, that's OK. <laughs> Sounds like me, Hall, all right. Because oh, I, I, I was talking to me, Hall, about it. And I was like, oh, Cam, Cam Josh, like, uh, called you me, Hall. And he was like, oh, I know. And Cam was saying, like, because uh, Cam said when he saw his name, like, in the written context, he was like, it looks like Michael, but the Ian Aaron different positions and it has this like line and he's like is it michael and then cam kind of put one and one together because he's a pretty smart guy he's like it must be an irish way so he asked me and me hall was me hall but i just know when cam said me hall and now you just said it, i was like too very well played sir very well played he's back in ireland now and i have a feeling he's gonna stay i actually didn't know that is he is he back he is because oh. i was just down in dallas for tfc and normally he comes to stuff because we hang out. Mm. I love hanging out with him. He's hilarious. Uh, and he wasn't there. And I asked Ken if he knew where he was because he wasn't responding to texts. And he goes, he's back in Ireland. And Ken thought, again, completely making this up, may not be true at all. But he goes, I have a feeling he's going to stay in Ireland. Well, Michal, if I haven't contacted you before this goes out and you hear this, let us know where you are. By the way, his research... Uh, that got his PhD on all the sled training. Phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I, JB Morin does great stuff and all those guys do great stuff, but Michal actually has a program set out for everyday people. That was, he did a lot of that research on his cohort in the high school he was working in. Was yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. So he, he had a lot of, um, he had a lot of participants. Like he got a lot of, da- a lot of data for that. Oh, a lot of data. You should yeah. see the video. It's amazing. Great stuff. But he gets trashed. I think who trashed him? Like a everyone, bar or someone. Everyone, everyone gets trashed, man, to some degree. I know. That's why I don't do social media at all. I don't look at all. Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap up? No. Thanks for calling or reaching out. Always, man. Like you listen, I'm not just saying this because we're we're online here, and I no doubt there'll be a few listeners who will say he's just saying this because Chris is on the other end. But you're honestly one of my favorite people to talk to when it comes to training. And then, well, as I said, when we get into history, before we leave, what are you currently reading? If you are reading anything, I am reading uh, "The British Are Coming" by Rick Atkinson. Okay. It's about uh, Revolutionary War, 1775 to 1777. Rick Atkinson wrote The Dawn of Battle, The Day of Battle, yeah. and The Eve of Battle, which is, you know, America and Africa, America and Italy and America and France in World War II. Cool. Now he's doing a three-volume on the American Revolution. Great stuff. I'm a little bit weaker on the Revolution than it will be on the Civil War. Uh, I've watched a good bit now on, on the Revolution, just like YouTube documentaries, but... Because I, I suppose Lincoln has always been my favorite president. So I've done a lot around that whole era of U.S. history. So um, finally, Grant, I know just, just because I was listening again to that, Ken, you on Ken Gunter's the professional athlete. And at that time you were reading Grant. Um, any good Grant recommendations? I know you like you used to this, Grant. 
the one that I recommended on his show, uh, I still like. I am not a Grant Basher. Yeah, I'm not either. I'm not a basher of any oh, presence. Oh, 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 I got a good one for you. Um, it's on his Siege of Vicksburg. It's on the Vicksburg campaign. Brilliant. Phenomenal. Brilliant. Phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and you get to meet Sherman. You get to meet Grant. You get to meet uh, the Confederate generals. Uh, good stuff. I, I, it's, you know what? Do you know what just came to my mind there? You know the way we were, we were just talking about the way in school like the students have no clue about your like your whole other life as a coach and like as a very prominent figure within within our profession it reminds me too now of the story of grant where like you know he won that first big war and he was the general of the army and he goes to dc and no one knows really what he looks like and he goes he got to that- arrested for impersonating u.s grant did he get well the story i know is he went to the hotel and and he went to book his room and the guy says well we've no rooms ready and then he says, oh, that's fine. And then he had to sign something. And when he signed his name, Grant, your man goes, oh, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're just whatever you are. You're General Grant. And he's like, yeah, he goes, oh, right this way, sir. <laughs> and Grant's you know what his like, speech was that night? No. So he's in front of all the generals. All the dignitaries are there. And it's his welcoming party. He gets up and he says, and I don't, it's not verbatim, but he basically said, Thanks for having me. We got a lot to do tomorrow. Have a good night. And that was it. I, I just know that he showed up like at the White House in like crumpled, like just the crumpled uniform he had. And he meets Lincoln like and then like he's so much smarter than Lincoln that they stood him up on a couch and like they just left him there. And he had to shake like all these hands of people like and it was just like everyone was like, oh, my God, this is Grant. But uh, yeah, and, yeah he hate, and he hated animal cruelty. He's a bit. Ba- oh, he's a horse lover. Yeah, he loves horses, yeah. And he loves his wife, too. He loves his wife. Yeah. Um, listen, fantastic. I'll say goodbye to you offline. Um, Chris, just if anyone did want to reach out and connect with you, where would be the best place? Well, as we talked about how bad my website is, Slow Guy Speed School is my website. Um, I, I don't even know. If you DM me or whatever, you message me on whatever social media, I usually check to see if anyone's reaching out that way. But uh, I only post when I have something to sell. Um, you know, I, it, it's just that there's so much more to life than just one little picture and a sentence that you can't encapsulate everything that you're doing in just that little butt bit. And so, uh, yeah, I, I look at my website, RPR reflexive performance, uh, you can contact me through there. Uh, but again, it's our little pool of people. And I think everyone in our little pool of people knows how to contact me. So Yeah, exactly. Plus, listen, I'll have all that linked up in the show notes. And by the way, your website's functional. It does what it says it does. I mean, like there is a contact there and it gives, oh, everyone, yeah. it gives everyone the basic background. So, I mean, I actually like your webpage. It's nice and simple. Yeah. Um, well, thanks. Yeah. So listen to everyone listening. As always, I appreciate everyone's earbuds. And if you could share this around, I suppose it'd be great. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I'll definitely have Chris back on if he'll come back. Um, because I said yeah, absolutely. One, one of my favorite peeps to talk to. But as I say at the end of every show, until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.